Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. In this week's podcast, we reveal our ultimate stock picker's top pick. Russ Kennel lists some funds that are sustainable for both your portfolio and the environment. Christine Benz discusses investment vehicles for heavy savers with extra funds. And Amy Arnott looks at diversifying equity holdings by factor. Let's get started. Here's what the top managers like about Interactive Core. Each quarter, we take a look at the recent transactions of some of the top money managers around today, who we call our ultimate stock pickers. Last quarter, one stock in particular was a popular new money buy among the group. What are new money buys? Stocks that managers purchased that weren't in their portfolios the prior quarter. IAC Interactive Corp topped the new money purchase list with three funds buying into the firm, despite not holding any positions in the company last quarter. After spinning off Match Group in 2020 and Vimeo in 2021, we think IAC Interactive Corp is again well on its way to generating attractive returns from Angie, a market leader in matching reputable home service professionals with consumers. IAC has invested in areas within this segment that have resulted in basically a feedback loop, attracting more service professionals who have helped bring in more consumers who in turn have attracted more service professionals, and so on, thereby strengthening Angie's network effect. According to various studies, the home services market in the U.S. is valued at nearly $400 billion, of which more than 90% of transactions are initiated offline. We think Angie, the online market leader, has 3% to 5% of this market, an indication of attractive growth opportunities for the segment. This internet media company's portfolio also consists of dot dash and search segments. Continuing growth and higher demand for contextual campaigns and digital advertising will increase ad revenue for these segments. The firm's emerging and other segment includes care.com, which provides online services for finding and managing family care and matching employers and job seekers, staff management Blue Crew, Temp Healthcare Staffing Service Nursefly, the Daily Beast online publication, and film production service provided by IAC Films. IAC strengthened its balance sheet after spinning off Match, which we think will allow the firm to acquire more fast-growing online marketplace businesses. Morningstar doesn't think IAC has carved out an economic moat yet. We think shares are worth $111 apiece. Expand your investing horizons and look to the long-term with Morningstar's podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patak as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. Now, here are Russ Kennel from Morningstar Research Services and Susan Jabinski from Morningstar, Inc. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Morningstar recently introduced the Morningstar ESG Commitment Level, which allows investors to pinpoint the extent to which funds incorporate environmental, social, and governance considerations into their investment processes. Joining me today to unpack this new metric and to talk about a few highly rated funds that score well on this new measure is Russ Kinnell. Russ is Morningstar's Director of Manager Research and Editor of Morningstar Fund Investor. Hi, Russ. Thanks for joining me today. Glad to be here. So, Russ, first tell us a little bit about the Morningstar ESG commitment level, what it is, and what it measures. Uh, Sure. So, I'll start by prefacing it by saying that It's not at all related to the analyst rating. The analyst rating is a forward-looking performance uh, prediction 
whereas ESG purely measures a fund's commitment to ESG principles. So we look at how, how much do ESG principles impact the portfolio? Are the managers advocates? What are the resources to support uh, the ESG efforts of a fund? And uh, we look at all those things and we rate a fund from uh, low to high. So there's low, uh, basic, advanced, and high. And then in the most recent issue of Fund Investor, you took a look at some funds that have high Morningstar analyst ratings and also have high Morningstar ESG commitment levels. So let's talk a little bit about some of those. Um, one from fund from the list is Vanguard Global ESG Select Stock. Tell us a little bit about that one. Uh, yeah, this is a new fund, but really promising. Launched in 2019, uh, it's a world large stock blend fund run by Wellington. And uh, Wellington really has the depth both on the ESG side and the fundamental research side uh, to make a fund like this work. So uh, they look for good stewards, but also with good returns on capital. Uh, and of course, you have a nice Vanguard expense ratio of 43 basis points. So you know ESG is very affordable right now. And then there are a couple of funds on your list from Tiacref, uh, Tiacref Social Choice Equity and Tiacref Core Impact Bond. They're both on the list. Tell us about those. That's right. Well, their, their history of uh, running uh, pensions for teachers means Tiacref has been doing uh, various uh, ESG-like uh, strategies for a very long time. Uh, uh, Social Equity uh, is a fund that's been around since 99, uh, and it's kind of a very diffuse uh, portfolio that screens on uh, good ESG uh, characteristics, but still has a lot of holdings. Uh, the social impact bond is a really interesting one is bonds are kind of a newer field for ESG. Uh, and what really makes this one interesting is that 30% of the portfolio is called, are meant to be impact bonds. Uh, so by that, that means uh, smaller issues specifically meant to support things like an environmental cause, a social cause, a governance cause, so something that really moves the needle. Uh, so it's kind of unusual fund, but uh, we really think it's promising. So lastly, three funds from Parnassus made the list. Walk us through a little bit about Parnassus's approach to ESG investing, and of course, let us know what the three funds are that made the list. Uh, sure. So Parnassus has been doing this since 1984, where they've been uh, screening based on ESG characteristics. Obviously, those characteristics uh, have evolved, but really a strong emphasis on uh, sustainability. Uh, and of course, on, on the fundamental side, they're also looking for uh, sustainably high returns on equity. Uh, and, and so uh, we really like them both from an ESG and a fundamental perspective. So uh, there's Parnassus Core Equity, Parnassus Mid-Cap, and Parnassus Mid-Growth. Uh, we think all three are uh, an intriguing uh, mix. Well, Russ, thank you so much for your time today for helping walk us through this new lens from Morningstar and giving us some fund ideas, too. We appreciate You're it. You're welcome. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. Next, Christine Benz from Morningstar, Inc. and Susan Jabinski share some ideas for heavy savers. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski for Morningstar. Everyone has heard the advice to steer the maximum into their IRAs and company retirement plans if they can afford to do so. But where should heavy savers turn if they've maxed out those accounts and still have more to save? Joining me today to discuss that topic is Christine Bentz. Christine is Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance. Hi, Christine. Thank you for being here today. Hi, Susan. Great to be here. 
Now, clearly this is a pretty high class problem. Uh, most people aren't in a position to invest beyond those basic retirement vehicles that I mentioned at the start. Um, but let's assume someone does have extra funds to invest. What should be at the top of the list as the next investment? Well, when we examine the tax benefits, the investment vehicle that would rise to the top would be a health savings account. These are available if you are covered by a qualifying high deductible health care plan. And the reason they are so advantageous from a tax standpoint is that they allow you to put in pre-tax contributions. As long as the money stays within the HSA, it enjoys tax-free compounding. And then if you use the money for qualified health care expenditures, the money coming out is also tax-free. So for heavy savers, this can be a really nice ancillary retirement savings vehicle. You know you're likely to have healthcare expenses in retirement, so you'll be able to enjoy the tax benefits at each step of the way. So I would take a look at this. Some tax experts might even say it should go above IRAs and 401ks. I wouldn't go quite that far because it's not as flexible in order to earn all three tax benefits, you need to use the money on healthcare expenditures. And also some HSAs are not that great. Our team has been taking a close look at them for the past several years. I think we've been shining the light on them and I think they've gotten better, but some HSAs still do have heavy fees which outweigh or potentially offset some of those great tax benefits. So let's say you've checked out the HSA. What would be the next thing to be thinking about if you're in this situation? I would urge people to take a look at what are called after-tax 401k contributions. There's a lot of confusion about what these are and how they work. But one thing to know is that even though you, you see those sort of baseline 401k contribution limits, which is for people under $50,000, $19,500 in 2021 that you can make to a traditional or Roth 401k. You'll notice that there's also this larger contribution limit, and that encompasses your employer matching contributions, your own traditional or Roth 401k contributions, and then what are called after-tax contributions. Not all plans allow them, but bigger plans typically do or increasingly are. And the idea is that you're putting in after-tax dollars into the account. And many of these plans that offer this after-tax 401k feature also offer, offer the opportunity to convert your contributions inside the plan. And so that means that you can convert them to Roth and that really reduces any taxes that you'll owe on making these after-tax contributions. So it's a way for heavy savers to get more money into the 401k, more money into the Roth column. And I would also call out, Susan, increasingly we're seeing not only is this conversion feature available, but it's automatic for, for plans that offer it. So it's really a kind of frictionless way for people to save additional 401k assets and to have them be Roth. So definitely worth checking, checking out, but definitely fund your traditional or Roth 401k contributions before you look at this option. So now what if after-tax contributions aren't allowed or if someone still has additional funds to invest? Well, here I would look at a plain old taxable brokerage account where you're putting in money that has already been taxed. 
The thing I would note is that if you take care with that account, it's actually not that tax disadvantage to save within a taxable brokerage account. So as long as the money stays within the account, you'll owe taxes on dividends, capital gains that are distributed along the way. But if you're careful and if you use low-cost, broad-market equity index funds or ETFs, if you use municipal bonds for your uh, fixed income exposure, you'll be able to really reduce the ongoing tax drag on your account. You'll be able to enjoy long-term capital gains treatment on your sales. And you'll also just have a ton of flexibility with this account type where you can invest in anything, you can use the money for anything without any strictures. So you have a lot more leeway with this type of account than you would with the other two account types that we already discussed. And then lastly, you have a couple of out-of-the-box ideas for some investors to think about, but you say they may not be for everyone. Right. So for people who have younger adults in their lives where college expenses are looming, consider 529 college savings accounts as an option, potentially. Um, the key thing I would flag here is that you just have a ton of flexibility in terms of who you can transfer the account to. So if for whatever reason you oversave in a 529 account for your own child, well, the amount, the money could be held for your grandchild, for example, or for a niece or nephew. So there's a lot of flexibility to help other loved ones who might have college plans down the road. Then another out of the box idea I would call out is to consider prepaying your mortgage. And this is very controversial. A lot of people say, why would you ever do that, especially given how low interest rates are? And the key reason is that if you don't have any imminent needs for those funds, the mortgage paydown offers you a better return on your investment that you, than you can have with other similarly guaranteed investments, like investing in some sort of a money market account. So this is a kind of a peace of mind trade, but I think it's something well worth considering, especially for older adults who are getting closer to retirement and really want to try to reduce their total costs coming into retirement. Well, Christine, thank you so much for your time today and for these fresh ideas for super savers. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. And lastly, Susan Jabinski talks with Amy Arnott from Morningstar Research Services. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Since the 1990s, asset managers have been identifying specific characteristics beyond sector, market capitalization, and value versus growth that drive equity market performance. So should investors be diversifying their portfolios according to these factors? Joining me today with some new research on the topic is Amy Arnott. Amy's a portfolio strategist with Morningstar. Hi, Amy. Thank you for being here today. Thanks, Susan. Great to see you again. Let's talk a little bit about, um, you recently authored a paper looking at a variety of different correlations between different factors against a U.S. equity portfolio. Let's start out by talking about what are the factors that you examined in this paper? So we looked at five major factors, um, value, which measures the performance of cheaper stocks based on metrics like price to book, price to earnings, and price to free cash flow. Size, which is basically the smallest decile of investable stocks based on market capitalization. 
um, momentum, which measures the rate of change in price movements over the past six to 12 months. Quality, which captures stocks with higher profitability, lower debt, and more consistent earnings. And then finally, low volatility, which favors stocks that tend to have more stable prices that don't move around as much. And theoretically, each of these five factors should have its own set of performance characteristics and succeed or fail in a different type of market environment. So as I mentioned earlier, you, you looked at these various factors and how they, what their correlations looked like against the broad U.S. equity market. Before we get into the results of that, tell us again quickly what correlations are. So, yeah, so to measure correlations, we use a statistic called correlation coefficient, which measures how two different assets tend to move relative to each other. And this number can range from positive one to negative one. Positive one would indicate that the two assets are always moving in the same direction, and negative one would be an inverse correlation. And what you're looking for if you want to build a diversified portfolio is that you'd like to find a, a negative or at least relatively low correlation coefficient. Um, another key point we like to remind people is that the correlation coefficient only captures the direction of returns and not the magnitude. So two assets could have a high correlation if they tend to move in the same direction, but still show different returns. So let's dig into the data a little bit. Um, how did these factors look on a correlation basis against a broad equity portfolio in 2020's difficult market? So we've talked a lot about the fact that correlations tend to increase during periods of market stress, and that was definitely true in February and March last year. We saw correlations increase for all five of the major factor profiles. Um, we did see some differences in performance, though. Quality and momentum stocks held up slightly better, while small cap stocks, value stocks, and even the low volatility factor had the deepest losses. So again, that underscores the fact that different investment styles or factors can still have different returns, even if they have similar correlations. And then how did those correlation patterns for 2020 compare to what we had been seeing longer term? So if you look back over the past 20 years or so, you can see that correlations for all five of the major factors have generally trended up. And the irony is that the, the more asset managers and research study these factors and apply them to different investment products, the more they tend to move in line both with the broader market and each other. So if your main goal is to improve your portfolio's diversification, you won't necessarily uh, meet that goal by investing in funds focusing on different factor profiles. So then at the end of the day for investors, if we're seeing these correlations increase over time, if you own a broad U.S. equity portfolio, is there any value to diversifying in one or two of these other factors? Yeah, so if you own a broad market index, like a large cap index fund, you probably already have some exposure to most of these factors, but it's probably pretty small in terms of a percentage of assets. So for example, um, if you have an S&P 500 index fund, only about 8% of your assets might be considered significantly above average for the quality factor. So if you're specifically looking for exposure to that factor because you think it's going to improve your risk-adjusted returns over time, there's still a case for adding a dedicated fund in that area. 
Well, Amy, thank you so much for your time today and for this more in-depth look into the various factors that could be driving the market and how we might incorporate them into our portfolio. We appreciate it. Thanks, Susan. Great talking with you. I'm Susan Shabinsky with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services, LLC, is a subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.